So the English language has no appropriate word, uh, like in the dictionary itself, uh, for the word you in plural form. There's no, like if we go and read the dictionary, there's no like formal word. We make up words for it. So if we say you do this, I could mean like you lane, or I could mean all of you. And we aren't sure which one we're even talking about. If we're talking about one of us or a million of us. So I could say, hey, you mean the world to me. And I could be talking about May, or I could be talking about all of you, or I could be sort of broadly talking about this whole community. And we would have no way to know because in our language, we just say you, and we're not sure if it's plural or singular. And so uh, we create words to make sense of this. Uh, one of my favorite people in Charlestown is a guy named Jimbo Tucker, and I can always hear Jimbo, we'll see yous later. That's how I, we'll see yous later. Like he's pluraled uh, you, so it's yous or yous guys. We'll see yous, what are you, what are yous guys doing after this baseball game? His son will say to me sometimes. And so uh, that's how a lot of people will do it here, I've learned. And I want to do it, and it just sounds ridiculous. Well, I'll say it to my kids. I'll be like, we'll see yous later, uh, boys. Uh, and, uh, and Natalie looks at me like, what are you doing? And uh, I'm really just making a joke. I I think she thinks I'm being serious. In the South, uh, there's a word, and it, it sounds so odd when I hear people with the New England accent use the word y'all. Uh, but man, y'all, that's the, that's the Southern way you say it. And, uh, and, and Noah never said y'all when we lived in the South. And then we moved up here, and he started saying y'all. I'm like, dude, let that word go. We don't, that's not in the language up here, buddy. And uh, in Pittsburgh, there's a very unique one. In Western Pennsylvania, it's the word yins. And uh, I've never heard anybody say yins, but Michael Inks uh, was from Pittsburgh. And Michael Inks would say, uh, Juliana was part of a church that we started in South Carolina. And we had this guy, he played the acoustic bass in our, um, in our band, and he would say yins. He'd be like, we'll see yins later. I was like, what, what is that? Like, I had never heard of anything like that. I, apparently in some parts of the USA, people say you lot. Like, we'll see you lot later. I've never heard, I think I've heard that once out in the Midwest, but that one was different. Like, what do you say? How do you, how do you say the plural thing? Like, are you a y'all guy or woman? Or are you a you guys or yous? Uh, I'll say you guys here. Uh, I try to never say y'all in uh, living in New England, but I can't say yous because I sound ridiculous. So I'll be like, I'll say to my boys, like, don't you guys, uh, don't you guys forget your whatever. And that is how it sort of comes out in our houses. Most other languages in the world don't have that problem, by the way, like Spanish, uh, French, Italian, the Romantic languages, they have a you singular and a you plural. And that blew my mind when I was learning Spanish and French, like how the language worked. And the Bible especially the New Testament, starting in Matthew and going through Revelation, uh, is most of that's written, that's written in the Greek language. And the Greek has a really simple like, solution. It's, it's just like what happens in the Romantic languages. They have you singular and you plural. But we don't see that because it's translated into English. And when we read it, it just says you. And we're never sure if it's talking about you, one of us, are you an entire neighborhood? We, we never know because our language doesn't work that way. And so we can't read it. And you add, you add to that the fact that we are living in the most, arguably one of the most individualistic nations in the history of, the, like, of humanity. And when we see you, we just think it's always talking about an individual because we are a nation of individuals. And there's much more of a community 
feel to life here in New England than there is in the South. In the South, you have big yards and you can like sort of acknowledge your neighbor when you see them at the mailbox, like when you're driving down the street. But their entire subdivisions uh, where we would live uh, before we moved up here and people would uh, come down their street, sort of acknowledge their neighbor, hit the clicker on their garage, pull into the garage, close the garage, and never come out and interact with their neighbors. They could be totally... Uh, individualistic. And, um, and so we just don't think in terms of you plural. Uh, but as Bono says in that song, like sometimes you can't make it on your own. We are not made to go alone. And especially as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as the church, we're not made to do that. God did not set the universe up uh, to do it that way. I promise you, I can't make it on my own. I shared something the other day. Uh, with a friend, um, and he that I'd been wrestling through for a couple of months, and he texted me back. And you know, when you get a text, like you always assume the worst tone in the text. Is anybody like that other than me? Like, yes. And uh, and like he was, I had to remind myself that he, Landon does that. I had to remind myself that he was being loving. Uh, but man, all I could hear was sternness. And he was like, I'm going to rebuke you a little. So the moment he says that, I'm like, oh, he's yelling at me. But he says, you. We're not supposed to carry that by yourself. Why have you been struggling with this for weeks and not asking for help? He was like, you need to ask for help because we're not made to go it alone. Even the strongest of us is not made to go it alone. So let me give you really quickly before we jump in a sort of broad survey of Christian history. And I think this is going to help when it comes to understanding this idea of going it alone or not going it alone and, uh, and the you singular and you plural. The first four books of the New Testament, if you grabbed your Bible and you don't have to yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four biographies of Jesus. And they just tell the story of Jesus. The fifth book of the New Testament is the book of Acts. And Acts is really the biography of the Holy Spirit or the biography of the church. And you can make a case that it's both. And that's great. And, uh, and Acts uh, really starts to take place right after Jesus is resurrected from the dead and goes up to heaven. And it's just a story of the church starting in a backwoods corner part of the Roman Empire and making its way all the way to Rome, the center of the known world uh, for people in the West. And it all starts on a day called Pentecost in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit of God, for the first time, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, comes and begins to live in people. This had never happened in history. The Bible before that would say that God was with someone, or the Spirit of God was on someone, but it almost never said the Spirit of God was in someone. And at Pentecost, uh, God began to live in people for the first time. And so a person would, uh, at Pentecost and throughout the book of Acts, someone would become a Christian, they would begin to follow Jesus, and the first usually thing that they would do was they would be baptized and they would become part of a church. This was natural. You didn't, um, like you didn't, they didn't baptize infants in the book of Acts. You see no biblical case where they were doing that. This isn't a discussion about infant baptism versus adult baptism. It's not about any of that. But it is helpful to the conversation. Now in 200 AD, a church father, uh, one of the early leaders in the church, a guy named Tertullian, uh, mentions for the first time the idea of infant baptism. It had 
for 170 years. It had never really been talked about. And this guy mentions it. And so by around 250, the practice of the church, uh, in a lot of ways, because it was really a lot of, really two ways, reasons. One, because babies had such a high mortality rate, they began to baptize infants and uh, as a sort of comfort to parents. And then the other reason was to say, oh, you guys are parents to Barrett. You're going to raise Barrett to love God and follow God. You would sort of baptize that kid. They would put water on Barrett as a sign that, hey, we're going to raise this child to one day be part of God's family, and he's part of the church, and he's going to grow up in the church. Uh, And so this was the practice of the church from about 250 until about the 1740s. And uh, in the 1740s, Puritans in New England were fed up with religion where you just had people sitting in churches who wouldn't know Jesus if you punched them in the face. And they made a decision that they weren't going to baptize infants anymore. Instead, what they were going to do, and this was sort of one of the things that came out of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Boston Common, 27,000 people down there, Whitfield preaching to them. One thing that came out of it was this sense of, they had a fear of giving people a false sense of, um, of religion. So in other words, with Barrett, the, the, the sentiment changed for 1,700 years. They would uh, baptize an infant, and there would be peace for the parents and peace for the kids. Well, in the 1700s here in, in New England, they decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore because we don't want Barrett to grow up far from God but think, oh, I got some water thrown on my head as a kid, and I'm good. Like, so they had this fear. They said, well, we're not going to do that anymore. They also, and this was the real thing, the real danger. They had people in churches who wouldn't know God at all, but they were relying on the fact that they got sprinkled or baptized as a kid as giving them peace of mind. And they said, we've got to purify our churches. That's what the Great Awakening was a lot about. And so they began to baptize adults or older kids who could speak to having a relationship with God through Jesus. Now, that has positives and negatives. We were talking earlier about one of our friends here in Charlestown who told us that our baptistry was ugly when we had a baptism the other day, and she informed me that she was going to come and clean, like decorate it for me. And I said, sounds great. You come decorate it. I have no problem with that, but this is how we're going to do this, you know? Here's the problem with that change that happened in New England. It individualized faith. So because a child wasn't born into the church and dunked and just, you got to come and you got to be here because Barrett's got to be here, that kind of thing, because that was no longer the model and adults were making a decision, now instead of it being baby Barrett, it might be adult Carson. And adult Carson says, I'm going to be part of a church. And the problem becomes when it's his decision to come in, it also became his decision to walk out. And so what you began to see over the last 300 years was if you got your feelings hurt at church, you just quit going. Or what we would see even more is um, people would say, well, it stopped meeting my needs. That church stopped meeting my needs. You know, I liked it when the music was really good, but then the music wasn't good. It stopped meeting my needs, and I just quit going. Or I've known churches that stopped, like, having goldfish for the kids on Sunday, and uh, people would be like, my kids aren't getting goldfish. I'm, not, I'm out. Like, that church is not meeting our family's needs. And it's like, really? Uh, I have a dear friend who pastored a large church in Birmingham, Alabama, and they figured out what their church was spending on goldfish every year. And they were like, this is a colossal waste of money. We could be using this money in a better way. Uh, we can just tell all parents to bring snacks. And, uh, and people left their church over the ceasing to have uh, goldfish. And um, if we aren't careful, the idea of church, we can begin to think of church like it's a book club or a gym membership. 
You know, in a book club, if I like the book, I'll be part of the club. If I don't like the book, I don't go. A gym membership, I love a gym membership in January and February. I'm rolling off of that five weeks from Thanksgiving to Christmas. They're just catastrophic for my health. And so January and February, I love a gym. Well, you get to like May, June, uh, the Monday after the Super Bowl, like I'm done with the gym. Like that, that has worn off. I'm okay with my weight for a few months until we get closer to swimsuit time and going to the beach. Like we can think of church like that. Like I don't like what they're doing. I'm not going to go. Or it's just inconvenient and I'm going to quit. That's not a biblical model. And that is not this, uh, what God would intend for us to think of church as a bunch of we's the bible is not written to a bunch of you's it's written to a collective we and we've got to see that i want to show you uh the 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 first century roman empire and the people where the bible is written they're a community people and the bible's a community book we don't read it that way because we're americans but most new testament letters are written to churches and start with theology and right belief and then end with group applications for what everybody's supposed to do so romans 12 Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, Hebrews 10, 1 Peter 2 and 3, 1 John 3 and 4. All of those are a bunch of yous. When you see them, they're yous guys, you guys, y'all, all of that, not individual. But so much of my life, I read them as individual. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to look at uh, three passages today that will exemplify this. First, we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. If you grabbed one of the blue Bibles off of that table, if you got the small print, you have good eyesight. And uh, that page is 556. If you got the large print, it's 1056. If you, uh, if you want to grab one, feel free. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 is written to arguably the craziest church in history. Craziest church. You've got a guy coming to church. He's uh, sleeping with his stepmom, and everybody's high fiving him for it at church. You got people, uh, they're serving wine at communion, and people, the rich people are coming early and getting hammered on the communion wine and, uh, and all, leaving all the poor people out. And Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians to tell them, like, you guys have got to like straighten some things out. You've got to repent and change. And, um, and in this passage, he's talking about, uh, particularly about sexual purity and sexual morality and immorality because you've got guys sleeping with a stepmom and everybody high-fiving them, uh, fi- high-fiving him. And so here we go in 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm going to show you where it says singular and plural here. We're going to start in verse 19. He says, And do you, plural, not know that your body, uh, plural, is, is, is the temple, singular, of God's Spirit, who is in you all, plural. It's kind of confusing. But he's saying, don't you all, all of you, know that you are one thing. You are one temple together. Uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit in you, who you have from God. You all are not your own, for you all were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body one thing. One thing. Now, for most of my life when I would read that, I would think it was saying, J.D., God's Spirit lives in you, which is biblically true. So I am just supposed to do this one thing. And if I do that, that's great. If Lisa does it, that's her business. Like, if May does that, that's her business. If Renee does that, that's his business. But it's not saying that. It's saying... We all are God's temple. 
And God lives in me individually, but God lives among us. And together we are a body and we are his temple. And so together we're one body, together we're the temple of God's spirit. God's spirit lives in every one of us, but this passage isn't saying that. It's saying buildings don't hold God. I don't know if you know, it's not a church building. Uh, Six days a week or five days a week, this is school. And uh, so when we walk out of here at 12... This is not a religious building. It's just a school. Tomorrow, like I wish every teacher who walked through here would walk through and be like, oh man, it feels like a church in here. I want to follow Jesus because I work here. I wish that happened. Unfortunately, it doesn't. This is a church on Sunday morning for about an hour and 15 minutes because we are here together worshiping God. And God's spirit is here because he's among us. And when the community looks at us, they should feel confident that they are looking at God's temple. The thing across the street that used to be a church that's now a Dollar Tree, man, you can't ask anybody from this neighborhood who's really from this neighborhood what they think of that and them not have an opinion, right? Everybody's got an opinion about it. Like everybody's got an opinion because that used to be a church and now it's a dollar store. It's not a church anymore because the church is God's people, not a building. So 20 years ago when that thing still met, had it burned down and the people had to come over here and meet, they would not say, oh, well, St. Catherine stopped the church stopped existing. They would just have moved across the street because it's intuitive to us. We understand on some level that the church is not a building. The church is the people. So when Charlestown looks at Christ Church Charlestown, I hope they don't think we should put like a steeple on top of the school and that be the church. That would be awkward, right? Uh, I hope what they do is they look and say, oh, well, There's Carla, and there's Renee, and there's Vaskin. They are the church. They together are God's temple. The church is a community body. Um, We are all bought with a price. We're not our own. Collectively, we represent God in this neighborhood. And in this sort of area along the Mystic River, we're commanded to glorify God as one body. So if I love Jesus with everything I got, and Vaskin doesn't love Jesus at all, that's a problem. Like, we're called to be in this thing together. None of us can make it on our own. We belong to each other. There's no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. Lone rangers get picked off first, like, um, like wildebeests on the African plain. One of my mentors uh, told me one time about how hyenas kill wildebeest. It's brilliant. You'll have a pack of a thousand wilde- uh, wildebeests, and the hyena will sit up on a, on a cliff, the, a couple of them, and they'll find the weak one. And then they'll come down and they'll divide the pack in half to get to 500 and then divide it to 250 and they'll keep separating them, splitting the group in half till they get it down to five or 10 and then they can spot the weak one and they isolate him from the pack. And then that's when the hyenas get wildebeest for dinner. The enemy, Satan, looks at the church the same way. We're not made to go alone. We get picked off quickly when we are by ourselves. Our community is watching you but even more, our community is watching us. That's the biblical model that he's talking about here. We are the temple of God's spirit. Now flip to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you will. This is written to a network of churches who were much more religious uh, and morally upright than the people that Paul wrote to in 1 Corinthians. It's written by Peter to a network of churches Um, in several different cities. And here is what he says. I'm going to translate this um, 
in the JD translation. It's accurate to the Greek, but I just want you to hear what he's saying. He says, but you all, plural, are a chosen race, singular. Every one of you is one race. First Peter 2, I'm sorry, here, I'll give you the page number 2. 590 if you've got small print, 1121 if you're large print. He says, but you all, First Peter 2, are a chosen race, singular, a royal priesthood. In other words, you are priests, you are preachers, singular, a holy nation, singular, a people for his possession, singular, so that you all, plural, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you all, plural, out of darkness into light. Once you all, plural, were not a people, singular, but now you all, plural, are God's people, singular. God, what's that? Uh, sorry, yes, First Peter 2, 9 and 10. I'm sorry, I messed that up. Thanks, Carson. Thanks for the affirmation. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. You just need someone to amen my screw-up. That's amazing. Um, so good. Singular and plural. God takes what is singular, he takes what's plural, and he makes it one thing, one nation, one priesthood, one race of people. That's really critical uh, because once we were Lone Rangers and Jesus has called us to do something together, be on mission that we can't do on our own. The early Christians were diverse. It was a crazy bunch of people. They were diverse ethnically. They tended to be from Jewish heritage, but a lot of them weren't. And man, they were like the Jewish sort of religious people. And then the Roman, they would think of them almost as like barbarians. They were crazy. They would um, not follow the kosher laws and they weren't religious at all. They were very um, diverse financially. So you might have the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich sitting in church together, right by each other. That's why what was happening in 1 Corinthians, the rich were taking communion while the poor were being left out. They were diverse in gender. Christianity um, is one of the few religions uh, established over the last 5,000 years where women had a really equal seat at the table with men. Paul says, uh, Paul says in one of his letters that women, he, he tells them how they're to come in and learn when they're sitting and listening to the message because up to that point, other religions wouldn't even let women in the room. It's pretty diverse to have a room full of women and men both following God and Jesus, the gospel, made a way for that. It's a diverse group, so they couldn't be called, oh, well, those men or, oh, well, those Jews or, oh, well, those rich people. So they just started calling them the followers of the way. When they would see one of these 2,000 years ago, they would look and say, oh, there's a bunch of followers of the way up at Harvard Kent. And that was kind of lengthy. So they said, well, let's just start calling them little Christs because the only thing that makes sense to call them is little Jesuses. Together, there are little Jesus, Christians, little Christ. That's where the name comes from in the city of Antioch. The only way they could identify them was by calling them little Christ, little holy nation. Because we're one, one nation, one people, one priesthood, Jane Doe's um, righteousness becomes my righteousness. And because we're one, John Doe's sinfulness becomes my sinfulness. So how you live Monday through Friday has a bearing on this thing because sometimes we can't make it our own because uh, often we tend to think of faith like this. I need to draw this for you and I hope I'll still be able to get a clean recording. We tend to think of life working like this. Like, uh, here's me. I love baseball. Um, I have my iPhone with my calendar on it and here. 
Uh, I've got my money, my bank. I've got my boys. Um, that's literally their height. Um, I've got Natalie and my marriage. Uh, I've got our family. You know, I've got my, uh, my political views and, you know, all this stuff. That's what makes up me. And we tend to think of life as, oh, and then, so our tendency is to also think of our relationship with God uh, and the church as being an add-on. And I've got to juggle all of these things, right? Uh, the problem is, it's not really a biblical model. Here, what, Paul, uh, what Peter's saying here is that the church, when we became part of the family of God and we began to follow God, it's not just me, now it's we. I'm not in this alone. I'm in this with everybody else. And so I don't have to juggle all these things by myself. Other people, God's family, are here to help me juggle those things. So there's going to be times where I say, look, I've got something on my calendar that I can't, I just can't do this all right now. My calendar uh, prohibits me and my money from... Uh, getting a babysitter and paying $100. And in that moment, part of being the church says, hey, Juliana, can you please come over and watch our kids for a night? And because she's part of the church, I know that she will move heaven and earth if she's capable of helping us in that way. See, I'm not, I don't have to do all of this stuff. Part of being a Christian and being part of God's family is we don't have to do all this stuff alone anymore. We're in it together. So when we come up on a sin struggle... If it was just me, I would think, well, I've got to get through this on my own. Part of being the church is, no, I'm going to, I'm going to lean into these people and they're going to help me put this thing to death. We're not made to carry those things alone in God's family, in God's economy, in the way that he set this thing up. We're not made. We were talking earlier. We started a church 10 years ago in the South, and half of the church was Democrats and half was Republicans. Because in the South, most people tend to be Republicans. But we started a church for artists, and creative people tended to be a little less group thinkers, and they would be more Democrats. And, uh, and we used to constantly have to tell them, because they would be some of them would be fighting or sort of rebuking each other for their political views. And we would say, look, we are not first Americans. We are first followers of Jesus. And part of being we together is we're going to be loving and respectful and put the kingdom first over our political views. So we, I have no tolerance for people arguing politics and stopping loving each other in church because part of being this, it means that this is our highest allegiance, Jesus. And we fight for one another. And I don't alienate people by my views on anything. We want to bring people together around the cross. And that's what it means to be this. I'm not at the center of my life having to juggle everything. And church is certainly not out on the edge of this wheel. Rather, it's that we're in this together. Church is not a part of my life. Following Jesus is my life. And everything is seen through that. I confess to you, this is one of the most offensive things to our American sensibilities. We don't want to hear that we need each other. We don't want to hear that we're supposed to rely on one another. We don't want to hear that I matter to this group. Like we want to kind of coast in and coast out very easily and not be needed or dependent on. But this is the gospel. This is what Peter and Paul are talking about in those two passages. And so let me read to you a third one really quickly. Hebrews 10, verses 22 through 25. Did I get that right, Carson? Hebrews 10... 22 
through 25. If you've got a paper Bible, it's page 584 or 1109. It's just a couple of pages back from um, the Peter passage. Hebrews 10, um, 22 through 25. If you've ever tried to read through the whole Bible before and you get to Leviticus, most people bog down in Leviticus. It's really hard to read, really hard to read. It's a bunch of laws. If, I'm, I'm going to sum the book of Leviticus up in, in a paragraph. Really, verses 19 through 21 are the book of Leviticus. Leviticus says this, that God is holy, people are not, so we have to have a sacrifice that has to be slain, blood has to be shed for sin, a holy, a, a righteous priest has to um, make that sacrifice, and he has to do so kind of behind a curtain to remind us that people are born separated from God. And Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfills the book of Leviticus. God is holy. People are not. But Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the perfect priest who sacrificed himself. And Jesus tears the curtain separating us from God. And so uh, here in Hebrews 10, 19 through 21, it's going to talk about since we have Jesus the lamb, since we have Jesus the priest, since we have access to God, here's what we're supposed to do. It says, let us draw, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God bless you. And let's consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of God's return drawing near. So because of Jesus, we're supposed to do four things. One, draw near to God together with clean hearts and consciences. Fight away guilt for one another. How many of you struggle with guilt? You are like always paranoid. Yeah, okay, good. Most of us, great. So part of following God together means that when I see you struggling with guilt, I am called to say, hey, Jesus died for our sins. We don't carry the weight of that guilt. Don't listen to that. That's not from God, that negativity. Don't hang on to that. And we draw near to God together. We take a, it's like if we held hands in a circle. Part of being the church is we take a collective step together in toward God. The second thing it tells us to do is hold fast to the faith without wavering. Be believing together. Don't sell out on what we believe or how we're to live or what we're on mission to do. In other words, when I begin to fall down, collectively we're called to help one another not go down. That's what being the church is. Uh, Lane and Lana's mom, Alicia, had surgery this week on her knee because she was losing a lot of her balance and the ability to safely just get around. And so she had a knee, uh, most of her knee replaced. I'm so thankful everything went well. When we feel like we're about to fall, part of being the church is we catch one another and keep each other from going down. The third thing he says is think on how to sharpen each other and compel each other toward love and good deeds. I make you better. You make me better. You point out the good things that need to be added into my life. You point out the bad things, the sinful things that need to be jettisoned from my life. That's being the church. And then he ends with saying, let's not give up meeting together, not just on Sundays, but including Sundays. Let's make anything corporate, he says, a priority. For our church, we quit community groups for three months because we just want to get Sundays right and doing this well. Uh, but he, what he's saying is, let's get together. When you have chance, let's get coffee Let's have lunch together. Let's invite one another into our lives. That's not uh, typical anymore. 
And we'll talk about that in just a, se- in just a second. So in the New Testament, there are these one another passages. You see a couple of them here. Let's do this for one another. Let's do one another. There's 59 one another passages in the New Testament. Counted them all this week where it says one another. Do this for one another. Six of them are negative. Like don't uh, basically like don't stab each other in the back. Don't lie to each other. Don't steal from each other. 53 are positive. Uh, and I'm going to give you a couple of them. Uh, love one another is repeated 16 times in the New Testament. So that knocks out a lot of the 53. Here's some of the others. Encourage one another. We're commanded to encourage each other multiple times. That one's a repeat. Instruct or disciple one another. Teach one another what it looks like to follow God. That's a repeat. Greet each other with a holy kiss. No, sir. There's no way I'm kissing you, any of you people, when you walk in on Sunday. What it's saying, though, is show affection. That's the, 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 the biblical sort of parallel would be when I see you, you hug me or you give me a nice handshake and you let me know you're glad to see me. Commanded. And I'm glad to see you show affection. Serve one another. Be patient with one another. Hang in there. Don't bail on each other. Honor one another. Wash the feet of one another. Again, I would prefer not to do that. So the cultural equivalent, because we're not a foot-washing society anymore, is to serve one another and humble ourselves as we serve each other. Humble ourselves in serving one another. Accept one another as Christ accepted us. Carry the burdens of one another. Forgive one another. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Um, and there's several others. Those are some of the main ones. The big idea is we need you here. We need you here on Sundays. We need your story. We need your wisdom. We need your hurts. We need your personality. We need your gifts. We need your love. We need your perspective. We need your unique relationship with God. Everybody's relationship with God is not the same. One thing I love about uh, Renee is the way I love watching the way that he connects with God. It's different than how I connect with God. And I need Renee's enthusiasm, and he needs my whatever it is that I bring to this discipling sort of relationship. We need each other's relationship with God. It'll help us both have a better relationship uh, with Jesus. We... um, We need, uh, here I wrote down a couple more things that we need from each other. We even need one another to obey these one another commands. I'm going to show you a list of them this week uh, intentionally. And we need you to call this your church family. And you need we. If you're going to write one thing down today, here it is. We need you and you need we. We need you here and you need us. You need our stories, our wisdom, our hurts, our personalities, our gifts, our love, our perspective, our unique relationships with God, our obedience to one another commands. Why? God's a community God. God doesn't exist as like this old, I remember in Greek mythology, Zeus. Do you remember Zeus in Greek mythology? And uh, I loved learning about all the different religions. And they basically all start with like this old man God who's really fickle and lives on a mountain and starts creating all this other stuff. The God of the Bible is not that. God's a community God. He exists in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's a community God. People reflect his image in community. The first thing in the Bible that is not good is not the length of the giraffe's neck or mosquitoes and gnats or 
uh, that a river rushes to out. The first thing in the Bible that's not good, everything up to this point is good. The first thing that's not good is that man would be alone. That's the first thing the Bible says was not good, that people, that man was alone. We are made for each other. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. To be in God's image is to be in relationships, and these relationships point people to God and that he loves and wants relationship. Second thing, we're living in the most proudly individualistic nation in history, and yet we live among the loneliest, most relationally disconnected people ever. Now, I've gone statistically to the loneliest country in the world. It's Sweden. More people live alone in Sweden than any other country in the world. It's the most depressing place you will ever spend time when you begin to realize that relational dynamic. If, you are co- if you're dependent on a community of people in Sweden, you are seen on some level as unswedish. They are lonely people and it is a dark place. And we live in one of a, a country that also praises that individualism and it's dangerous. Cigna just came out with a study in August that surveyed 20,000 Americans. And here were their three conclusions. One, only half of Americans, 53%, say they have meaningful daily face-to-face conversation and relationship with other people. Isn't that crazy? of Americans say they have meaningful daily face-to-face social interactions, including extended conversation with a friend or quality time with family. There there was one night my niece was at our house and we lived in different places and I look up and I'm on my cell phone and she's on her cell phone and Natalie's on her cell phone and she and Natalie are actually texting one another. I'm like, we are sitting in the same room. How screwed up are we? And so I took my phone and took a selfie of all of us on our phones and I was like, hashtag community. Like we are a messed up people who don't know how to deal with one another. Uh, The second thing the Cigna study found is members of Generation Z, uh, adults ages 20, 18 to 22, for the purposes of the study said they they self-describe as the loneliest generation and claim to be in worse health than all older generations physically emotionally spiritually and relationally our loneliness is making us sick our loneliness is making us physically emotionally spiritually and relationally sick and and we and that's self-diagnosed The third thing the study found was that social media use alone is not a predictor of loneliness. As heavy social media users have a loneliness score of 43.5, that's only slightly higher than people who never use social media, 41.7%. In other words, it's easy to say, well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. I have deep relationships. And statistically, that's not true. Four out of every 10 people who are active on social media still feel alone. But then it's also easy to be judgmental and say, well, I don't do any of that nonsense. Those people are just as lonely as the people who aren't on it. We are a lonely country. We have an epidemic of loneliness. And here's how I want to bring this thing into the barn. Our love for each other and ability to be in meaningful relationships because we're in God's image and part of God's family will set us apart and be one of our best witnesses. Can I tell you how the church grew in the first 300 years? Here's how it happened. It was illegal to be a Christian. The first legal church buildings didn't pop up on the scene until around 315 uh, AD. And so when a plague would come into a community, everyone would leave. Except the old people and the people who didn't have the resources to get out of town and they would stay. And the Christians figured out, you know what? Those people are alone and they're vulnerable. And so the Christians would stay and they would nurse sick people back to help. 
health and make sure that people weren't alone. And in the process of that, when all the well-to-dos left, the people who were vulnerable became followers of Jesus. The other thing that would happen in the Roman Empire for 300 years is if you had a baby and you didn't really want it, you would just take it and throw it out on the trash pile, get rid of it. And that was socially acceptable. And the Christians were known for going to the trash piles and grabbing unwanted babies. And they would take them into their homes and they would raise them. And part of just raising them and taking care of them meant that a lot of times those Christians, those kids grew up in a Christian home and they became followers of Jesus. And so the church went from on Pentecost being just a religion of two or 3,000 people to within 300 years, it was a substantial part of the Roman Empire because of the way that they loved the vulnerable and the hurting that society had left. That was their best witness. I think our best witness as a church in Boston, because we live in one of the most transient cities in America and one of the most lonely times in history, relationships work differently in Boston. I think if you had a group of people who just loved each other, I think that's a really strong witness. I think that may be one of our best witnesses in this community. Bono starts that song asking his dad not to be so tough. That's how he starts it. He says, Dad, you don't have to be so tough. You don't have to act like you always have it together. And he, because he knew that his dad needed him in his sickness. But toward the end of the song, the most powerful line in the song is this. Because Bono's talking to his dad about uh, how his dad needs him. At the very end of the song, he says, don't leave me here alone. Don't leave me. Dad, don't leave me here. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. So it's, it's easy. What Bono recognizes is that my dad needs me and I need my dad because we're all made for a community and this deep, profound relationship. So here's the homework. The to-do. Like, what are we going to walk out of here and do? One, I just want to encourage you to refer to this as your church. So when you speak of Christ Church Charleston, I want to encourage you to say, this is my church, not just a church I go to. Those are two very different things. This is my church. Second, I want to encourage you to get to know somebody here. Like really get to know someone here. Invite them to a meal or coffee uh, or just talking before, after church, tearing down, stacking chairs. Just talk to somebody. Hey, how'd you end up here? What's your story? Do you live in the neighborhood? How long you been following Jesus? Oh, you haven't? Cool. Me neither. Like, just talk about those things. Work through this faith journey together and all the things it means to follow Christ. This week, we were over in Medford. I love the place Donuts with a Difference. Do you guys ever go over there? Man, you're, I'm glad I don't live where you live because it would just be that much more dangerous. I love that place. And we were over there, and uh, Natalie was like, Lisa loves donuts. We got to get Miss Lisa a donut. And so <laughs> I walk up with this uh, white bag and Lisa knew immediately. She's like, no, sir. What is that? What is that donut? And I was like, this is from Nat and I. We love Lisa. Lisa loves us. There's not anything that I would not do for this woman. She is part of the family of faith. And I, and I believe she feels the exact same way toward me and my family. That's church. That's church. We fight for one another relationally. The third thing I would encourage us to do is arrange your schedule to make the gospel in community a priority. Simplify your life in any way that you can. Say no to some things. Step away from some things. Not to make God happy or to prove anything or to even build an organization called Christ Church Charlestown. But because people need relationship with God and his people. And this is, I really think this is one of our best witnesses. I've been talking with my brother about how Christians will make other Christians in the next hundred years. And we have some theories uh, about where the church can step into the gap. One, by the way, is I, don't, I think Christians will be a great witness in the next 50 years if Christians learn to die with dignity. 
and not try to hang on and live to 125 years and freeze our body parts so that we can be magically brought back in 200 years. Like, um, I think it's a solid witness to say this life is not all there is and I'm going to be okay when I take my last breath here on earth. That's different than the narrative our culture is telling right now. Another way I think our church can step into the void and speak is we need one another. We need each other. We're not made to go at this alone. Um, I need you. You need me. We need one another. This is a we thing. That is not the American way right now. And that's a great witness to our neighborhood. And the most, arguably the most transient city in America, people who fight for one another and arrange our lives to make one another more like Jesus. That's a powerful witness. Let me pray. And, uh, and then we'll receive communion.